Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. All right, take your Bibles and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in the pew. And if you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 178. 178. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, today, if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to try and remember this statement. As followers of Jesus, love for God must motivate everything we do. If you get nothing else out of today, and you slept horribly last night and you fall asleep, just remember this. Okay? I, in fact, let's, uh, let's just say this together as we think about the implications of this, okay? Let's, let's say this all at once. As followers of Jesus, love for God must motivate everything we do. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I, I want to read verses 4 through 9, and then we're going to come back and circle around in s- some context for this so we know who was this being spoken to and what were the circumstances around it. But in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, I'm curious, uh, by show of hands, how many of you would like to see a miracle from God in your life today? would say, most of us would say, yes. I would love to see that. Now, the second question to that, though, is how do you think you would respond if you did experience a miracle of God today? Now, if we were to stop and ponder that, the chances are pretty good that you would go, I, I would respond in worship. I would respond in adoration to God. I would respond in devotion to the Lord. I would respond with exceeding praise and thanksgiving to Him for what He and He alone has done. And yet, time and again, 
We'd like to think that we would respond this way. But history reveals that we often respond that way in a moment, but lose sight of who God is in the long run. It's easy, if you will, for us to follow a God who is fulfilling our greatest desires in ways we never could have imagined. It's easy for us when things are going well and yet when things turn and things aren't the way that we might have hoped they would be or wanted them to be, then who is generally the first person that we blame? God, how could you let this happen? How could you allow this to be present in my life? In scripture, it's really not that different at all. We look at the history of Israel and if you start in Genesis and you begin reading, it doesn't take long at all for you to find that people, though experiencing the very presence of God, are prone to wander away from God at the first sight of something that seems more pleasing than God. God brought the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery and they didn't even get that far away and they began to complain as the Egyptians came after them saying, I was better in Egypt. You brought us out in the desert to die? God saves them from the Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea right in front of them. They walked across on dry ground. And then they come to the land of Canaan and spy out the land. And what do they do? These people are too big. They doubt that God can give them victory. God gives the people a clear list of commands. And when Moses comes down off the mountain, they have already formed an image and are worshipping it. God feeds them from the sky in the wilderness, and they start to complain about the type of food that they're eating. All of this, understand that this is the, this is the crazy part, all of this happening within one generation of people in Israel. You know, we think about that and we don't often put together that, well, wait a minute, these were the same people because they wandered the desert because they refused to believe that God himself would come through for them as he'd already promised to do. And it was then that this generation dies off. And if you start there in the middle of that narrative, then you might be prone to go, well, good grief, God is really impatient until you realize all that God has done leading up to that moment. So all of this has taken place. It's what the, the book of Exodus in our Bibles details. This journey out of Egypt, exiting Egypt. But now in Deuteronomy, things have shifted. The whole generation that saw God work miracles in their midst and still went their own direction has now died off, exactly as God said would happen, because of their disobedience to the Lord. And this new generation stands on the edge of crossing into the promised land that God had promised long before they existed. 
that he would give to them. And we see in this moment, Moses, in his final instructions to this new generation, as they prepare to step foot into this land, a land that he himself will never actually step foot in. And this is what propels him into verse 1 of chapter 6. Moses is speaking to this generation of Israelites as they prepare to step in. And picture Moses for a second, having experienced the perspective of all of this. Moses was the one who experienced God in the burning bush telling him, Go to Egypt and bring my people out. Moses is the one who witnessed the miracles of God before Pharaoh and the plagues that the Lord brought upon the people because of his hardness of heart. Moses is the one who put his staff into the Red Sea and saw it part and the people walk across on dry land. Moses is the one who pleaded with the Lord for food because that's what the people were complaining about and saw God deliver it. Moses is the one who sent the spies into the land and had them come back and the people rebel and say, no, we don't want to do this. Moses is the one who in the book of Numbers, he actually experiences the people trying to raise up against him because they, they decided they didn't want his leadership anymore. And God deals with that swiftly on behalf of Moses. And so now Moses has watched this whole generation of people who he knows have seen all of these works of God They've seen the miracles. They've seen all of this happen. They died off and now he is trying to motivate this new generation. This is what is important. And in verse 1 he says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them. Everyone say do them. That's important, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, so it's generational, by keeping all his statutes and his commands, commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. That it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we come to this really well-known passage in, Deut- in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Which Jesus himself actually quotes this text. And many of you may be familiar with this in the book of Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. We see this referenced and in Mark chapter 12, we see this. One of the scribes came, to and, uh, came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And one of the things I love about this is, how many of you would love it if there was just one thing you needed to do to glorify and honor the God and your life was taken care of? How many of you would like that one thing? If we go back to Genesis, how many things did God give Adam and Eve to do? One thing! Right? And I laugh and I think, man, we are really confident in ourselves, aren't we? We are really confident that, man, God, if you just, if you just lower the bar, I, I, we could make it. We could do it. And I go, 
The bar was the lowest it possibly could be at the beginning. And we still chose ourselves. How do we think it would be any different? But he wants to know, what's the one thing? <laughs> Man, what's the one thing? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he goes further. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have heard that before? Okay. Yeah, it's everywhere. Love God, love people. Now, here's the interesting truth behind this. Why is it that Jesus emphasizes this particular text? Well, in Deuteronomy and in Jewish culture, this passage in Deuteronomy 6 is actually called the Shema. Everyone say Shema. And Shema is the Hebrew word for listen or hear. As it starts, hear, O Israel, Shema. And this Shema even to this day, is still quoted as a regular practice amongst Jews. Why? Because in the scope of all of God's commands, this one sticks out. And there's a reason that this one sticks out. We, are, we have been in this series focusing on disciple making. How do we go about living a life that draws other people to Jesus? And over the last three weeks, we've heard multiple perspectives on that as far as how we prioritize our time and uh, even the life that God has always wanted us to have. Bill talked about last week. And today, the, the, this focus is what is the main thing? At the end of the day, you and I can have lists and lists of things that we think we're supposed to do, but what is the main thing? And it's, it's been emphasized from the very beginning. So when we come to this, what is it that he is commanding the Israelites to hear? Hear what? The first thing is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there is this truth that rises to the surface as he emphasizes the oneness of who God is. That what unifies a people is a corporate understanding of who God is. I'm going to say that again. What unifies a people is a corporate understanding of who God is. You see, if we come even to a gathering like this, and you and I have different ideas and perspectives about who God is and how He functions and how He works, you and I, no matter how hard we try, will never attain true unity together. It is the very reason why our concept of God as a church is rooted in what God has revealed about himself, not our own ideas about who God is. It's the very reason that it is important that we stop, we pause, and we go, where does God reveal himself to be this way? And when we hear rumblings amongst other people that is... Shifting the idea of this is who God really is. We need to pause. I'm not saying we need to go and say you're wrong. Because maybe, maybe we have misstepped. But then we come back to the places where God has made himself known. And we root into that. One of the, my favorite ethos phrases is the simple question of where stands it written. 
Where has God made it clear that this is who He is? And when we can get behind that, when we can together unify around that, then there is nothing in this world that can break that bond. It's the very thing that Moses is declaring from the Lord that you need to first understand there is one God. The Lord our God. And notice there, it's a corporate understanding. It's not the Lord a few of y'all's God. It's not the Lord my God. Moses isn't, he's saying the Lord our God as a people is one. He is one. The plural acknowledgement here is that he is not only the God of a few, but the God of all. And the oneness of God should be what motivates unity amongst the diversity of people. He is one God who is not opposed to himself. God is not competing against himself. Jesus identifies that when the, the, the religious leaders say that Jesus was demon possessed. And he goes, a kingdom divided amongst itself will not stand. In other words, God is not at war with himself. He is. Period. The oneness of God, this is important, the oneness of God starts here because it qualifies the commands that follow. In other words, it is one God who gives these commands, not multiple with different perspectives on it. And so it follows, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Uh, These specific phrases... Uh, often can cause confusion, especially if we're new to Scripture. We read this and we go, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And naturally speaking, we go, how do I do that? Well, heart here is not talking about our physical organ and our body. It's literally talking about the whole being, the, the personhood. You're oftentimes in Scripture referred to as the, the mindset. Hey, my, everything about me. I'm, I'm to love God with everything. All of me. The heart. When you see that reference in Scripture, right? Note that it's talking about your whole being. If we're to do something with all of our heart, it's, it's all of who we are. Our soul, oftentimes throughout not just scripture, but even in the philosophical world, the soul is thought of as the invisible part of the person, our will or our sensibilities. So it's not just that it's my whole person, but it's even the internal pieces of me that no one else sees should desire and yearn and seek after a love for the Lord above all things. Love for God must motivate everything we do. And then there's the physical part of the person, your might, your strength, your physical able-bodiedness. And we can think of passages like Colossians 3 where it says, In everything that you do, do all to the glory of God. Work as for God and not for man. Right? That even in the physical aspects of my day-to-day life, I'm to do it with a motivation that stems from a love for God. 
Now, realistically, there's some questions that crop up anytime we encounter this. Okay, you're to love the Lord your God in all of these ways. You're to go about this. But we think about this. How do we love God? Why should we love God? And what hinders us from loving God? Well, we pause and we think about the first question. How is it that we love God? Most people I encounter today, they have no problem acknowledging, at least on a surface level, that God loves them. But this takes it to a whole new level. And the the simple biblical answer to this is loving God looks like listening to God. In fact, Moses brings this about in the first three verses of Deuteronomy 6. This is the commandment. That the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may what? Verse 1. You may do them. And he says it again. Verse 2. That may that you may fear the Lord your God, you your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life. Hear therefore, verse 3, O Israel, and be careful to what? Do them. Everyone say do them. Be be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Now, someone can look at Deuteronomy 6 and go, well, wait a minute. Uh, This is clearly God's covenantal promise with the people of Israel. How does this then apply to you and I today under a new promise given to us through Jesus? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus makes this statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here is the humbling truth that we need to sit with and wrestle with. It is really easy for you and I to go, God loves me. And that is made clear through the sacrifice of Jesus. But do I love God? I can believe in God and not love God. Think about that for a minute. I can know about God and not love God. And it usually shows in how we live our life. We as a church, as a whole, as, an, as, a, as a physical organizational body, can know a lot of things about God and not love God himself. The command is, you shall love the Lord your God. And Jesus clearly repeats this over into Matthew. And it is talked about today. Love God, love people. But we don't ever stop to ask the question, how do I love God? The most simple answer to that question is, I love God by listening to what he says. And walking in obedience to what he has given me. Loving God looks like obedience to God. Now, there's maybe, maybe you're not even to that point of how yet, and you're more on question two. Why? Why should I love God? And I want you to put your finger in Deuteronomy 6. I want you to turn all the way almost to the other end of your Bible in 1 John chapter 4.
If you get to Revelation, you're close, but you're too far. Alright? It's just a few pages back. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. 1st John chapter 4. Now, in the first... In the first five verses of 1st John chapter 4, John is writing to warn fellow believers, followers of Christ, to not believe every spirit, to be cautious and to test the spirits to see if they're from God. And makes even the statement in verse 3 that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is, um, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So in other words, if a spirit does not confess that Jesus is coming from God, right? Jesus is who he said he was. Then discard that and move on. But in verse 6, look at this. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved... Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is what? God is love. Now, I will qualify this and say it does not say here God is loving. And that's a big distinction. God himself defines love. Not just what we would define as being loving. Because there may be many things that we look and say, I don't know, I don't really feel like God's a very loving God. Well, He defines love. So your definition of love is probably off if you feel like something God is doing is not loving. In this, here's, here's the why. Why should we love God? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world. So that we might live through him, him being Christ. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Sounds similar to Jesus' second command there. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As followers of Jesus, love for God must motivate everything we do. Now, the greatest fragmentation between the church and the world is that the world is convinced we just need to love one another more. Scripture makes it clear that without loving God, we won't know how to love one another. Without loving God first, we will not know how to love others best. And this is so important. If you and I, of our own strength, seek to love other people out of our own knowledge and ability, we will miss what God has called us to do through a love He has already shown us. It has to start by us saying, My love for God is my priority above anything else. Anything else. Without loving Him first, I will not know how to love others best. I will be chasing my own tail. So what is it that hinders us from loving God? Anything that we love more than God. And as I was thinking about this, I wrote down three things. Possessions, positions, and people. What is it that hinders our love for God? It is our possessions, positions, or people in our life. If I love any of these earthly things more than God, then I end up blaming God when my real love is not tended to. In other words, if I value my possessions more than... If I love my possessions more than I love God, if something happens to my possessions, guess what happens? God! Why don't you love me? Same is true about our positions. We strive to climb the corporate ladder, if you will, or achieve a status or a, a, a point of uh, in this world where, man, I'm, I'm making good money and people respect me and something happens, I lose my job. What happens if I love my positions more than I love the Lord? God! Why don't you love me? But I'm going to tell you, I think the one I encounter more than anything else, that we are prone to love more than God is people. We idolize our marriages, our families, our friendships. And here's the dangerous part, family. We encompass that under the guise that my love for these people is God's way. All the while forsaking God altogether. I'm going to put all these other people on a pedestal and they are my priority above any, anything else, including God. We have to be honest about this. And then, how is this most seen? When I lose the people, whether it be a break in relationship, 
a death? My kids go off to college? You fill in the blank. What happens if my love for those people is greater than my love for God? God! You don't care about me because you took this from me. And yet, why? What was the answer? Why should we love God? He loved you before you ever knew Him. How do we know that? Because it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. The very hope of the gospel begins by us understanding that God saw each of us before any of these other people were even in our lives. And He said, I'm making a way for you to be with me forever. I'm going to take care of it all. And guess what? Nothing in this world can ever take from you. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Everyone say nothing. There's nothing. But here's what will happen. I promise you if you love any of these things or Any additions to that, more than you love God, you will experience the most challenging losses and feelings of abandonment of any time in this world. Now, I am not saying, I want to preface this, I am not saying that when we experience losses, we should somehow just brush it off and move on. I'm not saying that in the slightest. You read the Psalms, and there are deep, dark days in Scripture. And many of you who are reading along in our church Bible plan have been going through Job. How many of you have been challenged by Job? Okay. One of the most challenging aspects of Job is Job loses everything. And yet he cries out to the Lord, frustrated, but he still cries out to the Lord. And at the end of that, God looks at Job and says, Job has honored me. And you're thinking, I read everything that he said. That's not what I thought. No, it's because Job, in the midst of going through all of the junk, never lost sight of his love for the Lord. He knew, I could lose all of this, but God will remain the same. Now we see near the end that Job starts to waver in that, and God comes in and he goes, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I set all of this in motion? And you, you want to feel really small? Read the end of Job. And yet we, because we prioritize love for anything but God over God, correlate God's love for us with our own desires in these categories. If my love for God is my priority then I am not surprised when these earthly things let me down. Everyone say, that's not easy. (laughs) There is no part of this life that is easy and simple. And that's all the more why our eyes have to be set on the promises given to us in Christ. Amen. Now, here is the last part of Deuteronomy 6. When our love... For God becomes our priority. It takes center stage in our life. Now look at these final commands. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words, this is verse 6, that I command you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Three really simple principles. How do I move forward with my love for God as my priority? Teach it, speak it, repeat it. Teach it, speak it, repeat it. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's exactly why in Judaism they would repeat this Shema prayer every morning and every night. Because they didn't want to forget it. They didn't want to lose sight. They would repeat it over and over and over and over again. Now here's the problem. You and I are prone to memorize something and repeat it without actually believing it to be true. Or we repeat it and we can say it, but we don't actually live it out. And yet this is to be everywhere. In, in the, the life of Israel, it's, it's to be everywhere. But primarily, it's verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your what? On your heart. It is your whole person. It's to be a part of you. It's to be a part of us as a people. And because it's a part of us as a people, it stems down for generations. You teach them to your children. You talk of them, whether you're sitting in your house or when you're going about and walking on the way. When you lie down, before you go to sleep at night, when you rise, when you wake up in the morning. And then there's this picture, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, this is one, I want to illustrate this. Because most of us don't know what a frontlet is. Alright, I had to borrow a game. And many, some of you may, may know this game before, okay? And I have no idea if this is right side up or not, right? I don't want to look at it, okay? So you put this, this in, right? And what's the object of this game? Who, who has to guess what it is? Me, right? I don't know what I am. And some of you are going, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> right? And so it's a fun game because you, everyone has these on and you go around and you try to guess. Who, who am I? Like, and I'm asking questions. I'm trying to debate this, trying to figure it out. Um, because I've got this thing on my head that reveals this is who I am. And everyone else sees it, but I don't know what it is. The frontlet was something that was worn around the head. And it was an identifying marker of who you belong to. What's different about the Deuteronomy 6 command from a game like this is that we should know who we are. And our number one aim is to live our lives in such a way that everyone else knows who we are. How do we begin to do that? We start doing that by loving God as our priority. And letting everything else that carries from that be an outflow and a motivation that comes from me going, I know what God in Christ has done for me, and so my love for Him is more important than anything else. 
There is nothing in this world more important than that. And guess what the better news is? None of you, nor anything else in all of, the cre- all of creation, can ever take that away. For all eternity. Can never take it away. And so sometimes I feel like we're trying to play this game with life, and we're walking around trying to get everyone else to tell us who we are. Trying to find our identity somehow in something that matters. And someone will identify something. We go, oh, well, maybe that's it. And, uh, but then we'll hear something else. Well, maybe that's it. And I'm telling you that at the end of the day, you are an image bearer of God. Who he loved enough to send his son for you despite all the wrongs you've done. And desires that you would live a life of confidence, not in your own way, but in a way he has already made for you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus and knowing that my identity is a child of the king and no one can take that from me. I can lose my job, I can lose my stuff, I can lose the people around me and no one can take my God away from me. And when that is our mindset, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is no amount of darkness. There is no amount of challenge or weightiness that can come against the power of the love of God that has already been shown in Jesus. The question is, do you believe it or do you just know it? And if we believe it, How are we living as people who love God as our first priority every single day? Can you say this again with me? As followers of Jesus, love for God must motivate everything we do. Father, we confess that it's easy for us to know these truths and yet to fail to believe them and live in light of them. Father, we recognize that it is easier for us to fixate on the earthly realities because they're right in front of us. And God, we confess that there's been times in our lives that we've seen, we've witnessed your miraculous hand at work. We've seen you move mountains. We've seen you make changes in ways that we never could have imagined. And yet, Lord, we still struggle to have faith. God, you have given us Time and time again, the opportunities to walk in faithfulness. You continue to show us mercy today by giving us breath in our lungs in the midst of our own struggles with our flesh. And yet you have made a way for forgiveness through Jesus. Father, I pray today that you would use this to form us as a people, unified under the convincing stronghold that you and you are God alone. To move forward as one people with our love for you being the thing that is most important. Help us to see the practical how-tos of how we do that. Lord, how we talk. How we live with our spouse. How we navigate challenge. That we would do so in a way that declares our love for you. That pours over into our care for one another. Lord, you know the depths of each heart here. You know where we're at as a person, as a, as a people, as a whole, in our country and around the world. And we trust you to move and make ways. 
for us to be who you have called us to be for your glory in Jesus name.